Uh, Good morning, and thank you for joining us again for our class, Faith in a World Without God. We spent some time uh, last week considering the current challenges to faith that we are facing today. Little of it is new, uh, but the volume has been turned up a good bit the past decade or so. Uh, But it's important for us to know where this comes from. You know, part of the noise in our culture is due to the fact that everybody operates with what's called a world view, whether or not they're aware of it. Everyone has a basic storyline or view of the world that allows life to make sense and be worth living. It, it provides the lens through which you see everything else. It seeks to answer the big questions like, what are we? Why are we here? And where did we come from? And so it's not just individual, distinct ideas that bump up against each other. We don't think in an intellectual vacuum, uh, but the cultural divide on issues like education, economic policy, abortion, same-sex marriage, animal rights, uh, whatever the topic, it's not just about people happening to see things differently on a particular hot-button item. What we have here is the collision of entire ways of viewing the world. Uh, But that also means that you can't just debate back and forth on issues without first appreciating that you're working from very different starting points. Sometimes you just need to, to stop and look around and realize that you and the other person you may be arguing with on Facebook have radically different pictures of the world. You know, building a city on Mars Uh, would be very different than city planning on the planet Earth for a number of reasons. Uh, The most important one being that you don't have an atmosphere, right? So that would certainly influence the decisions you make. Uh, But sometimes it feels like we're arguing about which direction a particular road should run and not realizing that we're talking about entirely different planets here. And the world that our secular culture thinks that we live in is a world without God. But that means that we get off track with them from the very beginning uh, because we believe there's a God. And not only that, we believe that God has spoken to us, that he has disclosed his intentions to us. And so our starting point is the Bible. Christianity is a revealed religion. We, We enter the cultural conversation with the conviction that God has spoken to these issues. We don't We don't come in our own authority, right? But in the one who made us and who informs us how to live life according to his design. And so this brings us to the question that we'll consider this morning, which is, is the Bible reliable? What reasons do we have to trust that it's God's word? You know, for a nation uh, with people who've historically sworn on a Bible in an oath of office because it was viewed as the standard of truth. The the current antagonism towards Scripture is amazing. But it's not really surprising, is it? You know, if we're pointing to this book and saying that it has authority over your life, uh, well, an easy way to get around that is to learn how to attack the book, right? Hath God said. And so there are several replies that have developed. One is, wait, you think we should follow a book that promotes slavery and commands genocide? And that's something that we'll respond to in part of our time next week. But, but it's also common 
to question whether or not the Bible you hold in your hands has anything to do with the events that it records or even what people originally wrote about them. And so matters of historical accuracy, translation, textual variants, and other supposed gospels are brought up. And even if you can know what Israel was like or what Jesus and his followers actually taught, what is it that makes the Bible any different from all the other books that have been written by men? You know, isn't it just like any other culture-bound attempt to understand God and to control other people in the process? And so, you know, chances are that you've come across at least one of these challenges before. Uh, but if not, as we saw last week, you will uh, very soon in the days ahead. And so the three questions I want to help us answer this morning are, how do we know that the Bible we have is what was written? How do we know that what was written really happened? And how do we know that it's true? So that's what we'll consider this morning. Let's just turn our hearts to God and seek his help with us as we look at these things. Oh, Lord, we, we gather together um, this morning, every Sunday morning, as your people, trusting that you are present with us, and Lord, seeking that you would meet with us today, and we, we ask that that would be the case in this meeting, and in the rest of our time, the gathering of your people, that you would draw near to us. Lord, if you're not real, if this book is not true, that we preach from every Sunday, then we're just wasting our time. Uh, Lord, so help us to see, Lord, Lord, build our faith this morning. Lord, would the things that we discuss uh, just help, or help us to have further confidence in your word, to read it more, to love it, and to obey it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so how do we know that the Bible we have is what was written? Well, we saw this quote last week from Kurt Eichenwald, the Newsweek article, The Bible So Misunderstood, It's a Sin. Uh, I would agree with that title, but I would apply it to his article, as we'll see. Uh, no television preacher has ever read the Bible. Neither has any evangelical politician. Neither has the Pope. And neither have I. And neither have you. At best, we've all read a bad translation. A translation of translations of translations of hand-copied copies of copies of copies of copies, and on and on hundreds of times. Now, his comments reflect a misunderstanding of how Bible translation actually works, right? It leaves you with the impression uh, that the Bible's been translated from Greek uh, to Latin to Swahili and then to Klingon and then eventually into English, uh, leaving us only with the end product in this like telephone game fashion. But when the Bible is translated, it's always the original Hebrew and Greek that are used. And, and so while he's attempting to mimic him, not even Bart Ehrman uh, would raise the objection that Mr. Eichenwald does here. But typically when people say something like, you know, the, the Bible's been translated so many times, who knows what it originally said... What that objection is trying to get at is, is not actually the translation of Scripture, but the transmission of Scripture. In other words, that all we have are copies of copies and not the original documents. And that is 
an issue that uh, Ehrman raises. This is a quote from his book, Misquoting Jesus, the story behind who changed the Bible and why. He says, it's one thing to say that the originals were inspired, but the reality is that we don't have the originals. So saying they were inspired doesn't help me much unless I can reconstruct the originals. Not only do we not have the originals, we don't have the first copies of the originals. We don't even have copies of the copies of the originals or copies of the copies of the copies of the originals. What we have are copies made later, much later. And these copies all differ from one another in many thousands of places. Possibly it's easiest to put it in comparative terms. There are more differences among our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. All right, so let's consider this. It's true that we don't have the original scrolls or papyri that Paul or John used for writing. Then again, we don't have the original document for any work from the ancient world, including all the ones that happen to be cited in your history books. Um, but that is different from saying that we don't have the original text. Okay, so what's important isn't whether or not the paper was preserved, but whether we still have the words that were written upon it. And when it comes to the Bible, we have what scholars have called an embarrassment of riches. It's simply astounding. Without competition, the Bible is the best attested work from antiquity, and, and Ehrman actually admits this. It's in a class of its own, just to do a quick comparison. Right? Uh, the Jewish War by Josephus has only nine manuscripts, first one dating to four centuries after the time of Josephus' writing, and yet that's a very important uh, history work for us. T uh, Tacitus' Annals of Imperial Rome is one of the most important sources for Roman history, and yet it survives in partial form in only two manuscripts dating from the Middle Ages. All right, there are ten copies of Caesar's Gallic Wars and seven copies of Plato. Well, what about the New Testament? Well, we have about 5,800 Greek manuscripts some reaching back to within decades of the original composition, and there are an additional 19,000 manuscripts in other languages, as well as citations from the early church. And the textual scholar, Bruce Metzger, was actually uh, Bart Ehrman's doctoral advisor. He says this, If all other sources for our knowledge of the text of the New Testament were destroyed, the quotations from the early fathers would be sufficient alone for re the reconstruction of practically the entire New Testament. All right, so what's the issue? Well, the main problem Ehrman raises here is the matter of textual variance or differences among the manuscripts. He says we have more variance in the manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. And that's an accurate statement. But it's also an unremarkable statement when you consider the fact that we have 5,800 manuscripts. And so the opportunities for small mistakes among handwritten documents abound. There are thousands of variants because there are thousands of manuscripts. But the vast majority of these variants are totally insignificant. Uh, many of them couldn't even be translated into English. Uh, you know, there are, there are at least 16 different ways that you could write, Jesus loves John in Greek. And yet, 
those would be counted as variants. And others are obvious spelling and grammatical errors, spelling differences account for 70% of the variants or mistakes of the eye, right? We've all done this, right? If you've ever copied something down by hand and you've gone back and forth between what you've been reading and what you've been writing, sometimes your, your eye will skip a line going back or sometimes the end of one sentence looks very similar to the ending of a different one and so you'll skip that whole sentence or you'll skip a word. Uh, those kinds of things are obvious. Uh, they're easy to recognize and, and they account for the many of the variants that exist among the manuscripts. Uh, sometimes scribes would just get tired and make stupid mistakes. Uh, one manuscript replaces little children with horses, uh, since those are similar looking words in Greek. Now, as a parent of a toddler, I can understand why that scholar would confuse little children and horses. Uh, but that last point illustrates what the German textual critic Kurt Alon described as the tenacity of the New Testament text. In other words, once a reading enters the manuscript tradition, it stays there. Even the nonsense stuff continues to be copied. It, 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 you know, once a reading enters one manuscript, it gets copied and it stays in the manuscript tradition. Uh, but that means that the original text remains as well. And so, you know, even if our options are A, B, or C, they're never D. None of the above. The original text has been preserved in the manuscript tradition itself. Well, Daniel Wallace classifies the variants in four categories. He describes them as neither viable nor meaningful. Viable but not meaningful. In other words, uh, the variants should be considered, but either way it doesn't affect the meaning of the text. You know, sometimes uh, a certain manuscript will have the definite article modifying a certain word, another one won't, but that doesn't affect the meaning either way. Um, meaningful but not viable. Horses instead of children certainly changes the meaning of the text, uh, but that obviously isn't a viable variant. And then both meaningful and viable. It might change the meaning of the text to some degree, and there's a possibility the variant could be original, although the evidence uh, tends to be weighted uh, generally toward one side. And he says that less than 1% of all textual variants belong to this category of meaningful and viable. Less than 1%. These are the ones that show up in the footnotes at the bottom of the page when you're reading your Bible. Right? So if you're ever wondering what that's all about, you'll, you'll have a little footnote. You look down at the bottom. It'll say some manuscripts have. Uh, well, they're just giving you, you know, all the evidence that's there, allowing you to be aware of these things. Um, but that applies to less than 1% of the textual variants that appear. But what do we do with these? Well, the discipline of textual criticism weighs certain things, like the quality of the manuscripts, the date of the manuscript and its text type, certain internal considerations uh, concerning what would be more likely to be original, and so on. We, we don't have time to discuss specific examples of these. Uh, I'd be happy to answer any questions. Uh, questions you'd, you'd have about this. But the important thing to recognize is that no theological point or central Christian doctrine is affected by these 1% of variants. Even if we don't have 100% certainty about a particular textual matter, at the end of the day, and we have to settle for reasonable certainty, uh, but footnote the other option, we're never at a loss for what the gospel message is or what God expects from our lives. And interestingly, 
Bart Ehrman agrees, right? In a Q&A section of the book, he's asked this. Why do you believe these core tenets of Christian orthodoxy to be in jeopardy based on the scribal errors you discovered in the biblical manuscripts? All right, so that, that question, which this is an appendix that was, after, after, it was added after the book had been published, that reflects the impression that his work has had on people. Look at what he says. Essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. Right, so Ehrman may be our best witness against the idea the biblical text has been hopelessly corrupted. Now, the Newsweek article we've interacted with not only questions whether we have the accurate words of Scripture, but whether we have the right books in the Bible. And this is the matter of what's called the, the canon of Scripture. And that's obviously a large topic, and how you approach this is colored by your worldview as well. You know, if you believe and a God who exists and who intends to reveal himself, then he's certainly able to communicate clearly to his people. God obviously has infallible knowledge about what books he has and has not authored. And so it's just a matter of the Holy Spirit leading the church uh, to receive uh, what he has inspired. And if we believe inspiration is possible, there's no reason to believe this would be impossible. And, and this gets at uh, what's called the self-authenticating character of Scripture, which we'll consider toward the end. But Eichenwald's article does provide an opportunity to do some myth-busting of common misconceptions about the canon. Uh, you may have come across uh, some of these. Uh, if not, you're lucky. Uh, what about this? About 400 years passed between the writing of the first Christian manuscripts and their compilation into the New Testament. All right, this is simply false. As Michael Kruger points out in his book, Canon Revisited, there were collections of the New Testament that were already circulating uh, around in the second century, and there's evidence in the New Testament itself that certain books were being collected together. For example, in 2 Peter 3.16, he refers to Paul's letters together as a unit. And you, and you get an impression of this from some of Paul's letters as well, that they were being collected together and read in the churches. They were being passed from congregation to congregation and being collected as the letters of Paul. In fact, Peter explicitly calls Paul's writing scripture and places them on the same level of inspiration as the Old Testament. What about this? In the early 300s, Emperor Constantine of Rome declared he had become a follower of Jesus ended his empire's persecution of Christians and set out to reconcile the disputes among the sects. Yet he also changed the course of Christian history, ultimately influencing which books made it into the New Testament. Uh, my wife swears that growing up, uh, she got blamed for everything. You know, there'd be a noise coming from upstairs. It'd be her brother or sister, and her dad would yell up, Rebecca! You know, just, uh, well... If you have a problem with, uh, with Christianity, the, the tendency is just blame Constantine. Somehow it goes back to Constantine. He's the, the culprit. Uh, I'm not sure where this idea came from, uh, but it did appear in Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, and it continues to resurface on internet forums. Uh, so here's something I want you to write in your notes. Okay, If you've got a pen, write this down. Constantine had zippity-doo-dah to do with what books made it into the Bible. Right? If you need help spelling that, let me know. Uh, there's no historical basis for this claim. 
no matter how many times people say it. Neither Constantine nor the Council of Nicaea had anything to do with the canon. All right. He says, the reason in large part was that there were no universally accepted manuscripts that set out what it meant to be a Christian. So most sects had their own gospels. There was the gospel of Mary Magdalene, the gospel of Simon Peter, the gospel of Philip, and the gospel of Barnabas. And, and he presents these gospels as, as if they were just as popular in the church as the canonical gospels and as if they go just as far back to Jesus' followers. But the fact is, right, listen to this, the, the only documents that we have from the first century about the life and ministry of Jesus are the four canonical gospels. These other so-called gospels were written in at least the second and third centuries, and so obviously not by the individuals whose names they bear. And not only do they contain legendary embellishment, uh, but they reflect a worldview that's antithetical to Christianity called Valentinian Gnosticism, which that didn't even exist until the mid to late second century. And so the fact that they reflect this understanding, that's one of the reasons why they receive the date that they do. Uh, but that's also why Orthodox Christians consistently rejected these writings, the writings of these heretical groups. And while the Gospel of Thomas is pretty popular in media hit pieces like this, it, it might surprise you to know that in that document, Jesus teaches that women need to become men in order to be saved. Uh, it's pretty funny uh, that our, our culture would be so fascinated with this blatantly sexist book, which many people evidently haven't read. Right? Put this in your notes, verse 114 of the Gospel of Thomas. Simon Peter said to him, Let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, I myself, myself shall lead her in order to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, there you go, ladies. That's how it works. Uh, does anyone want to seriously argue that this is an accurate representation of the teaching of Jesus? Right? There's no comparison between this and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All right, well, if we have the right documents and we have what was originally written, how do we know that what is reported actually happened? So this gets to what's called the historical credibility of Scripture. And for the sake of time, I'll focus on the Gospels and the book of Acts. It was popular for some time to consider the Gospels as belonging to the genre of myth, you know, that the writers weren't even intending to be taking in a, in a straightforward way. But as literature from the ancient world was studied and compared, it, it became clear that the Gospels were actually written as ancient biographies. And the standards for doing history in the ancient world were actually quite good. They weren't scientifically precise, but there really was a value for accuracy in reporting. And additionally, the Gospels are written much too early for significant legend to accrue, which scholars recognize takes several generations in order for that to happen, right? This isn't the digital age. Ideas travel much more slowly uh, in the ancient world. And just for corroboration, there are also 17 early non-Christian sources, non-Christian sources, uh, written uh, within 100 to 150 years of Jesus' life, and we know more than 60 facts about the life of Jesus from sources outside of the New Testament that agree with the portrait of the Gospels. 
Now, what about the Gospels? Well, in the Gospels, we have four distinct accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus written within decades of his death and resurrection, and in at least two cases, by eyewitnesses of the events, Matthew and John. Mark's gospel is identified in early sources as representing Peter's testimony. And Luke says in Luke chapter 1, which he, he gives you, okay, here's what I'm trying to do with my gospel uh, in Luke chapter 1. And he says what he did was he collected together eyewitness testimony. He arranged it. He interviewed people. He, he drew from historical sources and, and, and created an orderly narrative that he intended to represent the life of Jesus. In his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, Richard Balcom argues that certain named individuals, uh, such as Simon of Cyrene, or Jairus, or blind Bartimaeus, or why are they there? Why do they have those kinds of names that they're attached to specific locations and geographies? Well, they're listed, he argues, and he does this through comparative literature, because of the availability of their testimony in the first century for anyone to investigate their claims. That he's presenting them as, go and talk to these individuals. They'll tell you that this story happened. There are various positive historical criteria that are used in identifying the credibility of sources and the gospels contain them all. Uh, there's what's called the criterion of embarrassment. Or, you know, if you're making up a story, do you tend to include flattering details about your stuff or stuff that makes you look really bad right we all tend to embellish things a little bit even when we're saying it how it happened uh but you know in the gospels it, it, it's obvious uh, that we we have unflattering portrayals of jesus disciples from dumb statements to cowardly actions like abandoning jesus the night he's arrested and this is by the central leaders of the early church they're just telling a story here. Is that how they want to present themselves? Not only that, but there are unflattering details about Jesus that didn't need to be included if the authors were not concerned about the accuracy of their information. For example, right, uh, Jesus says, unless someone would deny himself and carry his own cross and follow me, you know, he's not worthy to be my disciple. What does Jesus not do? He's not able to carry his own cross. He's too weak. He has to get help, right? And so why mention that if you're just telling legends, trying to impress people with your hero? There are other features that have the ring of authenticity. There, there's the absence of narratives addressing important early church debates. There was the heated topic of, you know, Gentiles. When they're coming into the faith, do they need to be circumcised or not, right? And so that was an issue. People had strong opinions about that. There were divisions taking place over this question. It would have been incredibly convenient to just settle it by putting something on the lips of Jesus to address this, and yet they didn't do that. Why? Well, maybe because they were seeking to be fair to the historical Jesus and what he actually taught. There are other incidental details that demonstrate that the writers are dealing with real people and events. In John 6... When the 5,000 are gathered in Capernaum, Jesus turns to Philip and tells him to go buy uh, something for the people to eat. Well, why, why Philip? Well, we find out from Mark's gospel that Philip was from a town near Capernaum off of the Sea of Galilee. It's, it's not as if Mark and John are in cahoots in order to impress modern critics. They're just incidental background details in the narrative that contribute toward an authentic picture and that, and that brings up an, another consideration 
Now, while at least three of the Gospels were written from outside the land of Palestine, it's just amazing how much familiarity they show with the geography and local cultures of Palestine. You know, that might not seem remarkable. But just put yourself back in the ancient world in, in, in these guys' shoes. If you're not living in Rome, and you can't just go to Wikipedia and look up the details about these villages in Judea or Galilee and their local customs, you know, if you're just making up these stories long after the events, it would be you know, so much easier to just present the sayings and ideas of Jesus uprooted from any particular time and place. In fact, that's exactly what the Apocryphal Gospels do, writing centuries removed from the time of Jesus. The Jesus in the late Gnostic Gospels is someone who does magic tricks and makes enigmatic statements, but he's not a person of history. And Luke, as an historian in particular, is always putting himself on the line. He's so impressive with the amount of details he includes. His current knowledge of the ever-changing political landscape is so precise and verified again and again by outside documents and archaeological findings. You know, at some point, just when you're reading through the book of Acts, sit down and just make a mental note of all the governors and proconsuls and administrators that he mentions with their various titles. All right, so you refer to this person in this way, but you use this title for this individual over here. And, and, and sometimes he locates them within such a narrow window of time that they're in a particular province. Down to within two months, that guy was head over that province. It's just amazing. Now, C.S. Lewis, who was an, actually an Oxford expert in mythical liter- literature, that's what he did for a living, he said that people who say the Gospels and Acts represent myths and legends need to read more myths and legends. And they need to come back to these documents and witness the difference. Well, the historically accurate and non-mythical character of the Gospels should put an end to the whole Jesus mythicism craze. Uh, but we could add a few specific responses to this. You know, like I said... Last week, while scholars uh, reject this today, it's very popular on the internet to find claims that Jesus of Nazareth either never existed or at least was a very different person from the character we find in the Gospels who, uh, you know, whose legendary story was just borrowed from surrounding pagan religions. But the Jesus mythicism movement displays what scholars have called parallelomania. If someone tells you that the life of Jesus is just drawn from the myth of Horus or Zeus or Mithras, the question to ask is, really, um, what have you read? Uh, Which of these original sources for these myths have you actually read? Because the problem is that most people are, they're just getting summaries from others and, and these summaries are based in secondary sources, actually many of the secondary sources coming from the 19th century, and some of them just rehashed for the 21st century, and, and they're conveniently skewed. The parallels aren't really parallels. Uh, rather, the, the deck gets stacked by the use of explicitly Christian terminology, words that don't appear in the text themselves, but are used to describe the stories in a way that makes them sound similar to Jesus. So we're told that Horus, Krishna, and Dionysius were born of a virgin, baptized, crucified, and resurrected, even though none of those words are used in the text. But but some authors 
apply Christian terminology to describe the pagan beliefs and then marvel at all the parallels that they've discovered and congratulate themselves for doing so. Well, that's a little convenient. Uh, but when you get more of the story, the parallels begin to fall apart. For example, we're told that Mithras was born of a virgin. Actually, he was born out of a rock on the banks of a river under a sacred tree. And maybe that's a miraculous birth, but it's not what we mean by a virgin birth. We're told that Horus was crucified, uh, but the myth is actually that he was stung by a scorpion. And I guess a pointy object is used in both cases, but uh, beyond that, that has nothing to do with the real historical practice of Roman crucifixion. We're told that Osiris was resurrected like Jesus. Uh, well, really, his dead body was pasted back together by Isis, and then he was kind of revived in Frankenstein fashion with these incantations of the gods so that he could reign as king of the underworld among the dead. Right? So that's not exactly what we mean by resurrection. And the examples could be multiplied. Now, not only does the Jesus myth theory display a prejudice against the Gospels, which, as we said, are our earliest and best sources about the historical Jesus. But the whole idea doesn't make any sense. You know, even if first century Palestinian residents somehow had access to these various stories from different cultures and languages, and there's no evidence that they did, what motive would there be for monotheistic Jews to draw from sources from the very polytheistic religions that they detested in order to persuade their audience? There's, there's so much fundamental worldview distance uh, between Judaism and Christianity on the one hand and these Egyptian and Greek mystery religions on the other. And that's why the vast majority of scholars have rejected this theory and recognize that the proper backdrop for the life and ministry of Jesus comes from the Old Testament and from Second Temple Judaism. That's the appropriate context for understanding what the Gospels were seeking to achieve. All right, so let's say the Bible is accurately written and faithfully transmitted. Why receive it as God's word? Why trust the Bible? Well, the first thing that needs to be said about this is that I accept the Bible as God's word on the basis of the authority of God, confirmed to me by the witness of the Holy Spirit. Now, that could seem as circular as a merry-go-round. You know, the Bible's true because the Bible tells me so. But all worldviews, right? Here's an important thing to recognize. All worldviews are broadly circular when it comes to their ultimate authorities. Why is that? Well, well because it is an ultimate authority, right? There, there's nothing higher than that that you can then appeal to. And, and so if, if you say... You know, reason is your ultimate authority. And I ask you why, and you start to give me reasons for why we should trust reason. Well, what you've done is you've just opened up your Bible there. Or if you say science is what gives us ultimate truth, and then you present scientific evidence in support of this, that's just as circular. And by the nature of the case, the buck stops with God. Right? If God exists, there would be no one higher to appeal to than his Authority, and that's what Hebrews 6.13 says, when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. And notice, this, this isn't what you know, people call fideism, blind faith without evidence. There's something real and objective going on here. 
This is, it accepts the witness of God's word as trustworthy evidence. And if, if as you've read scripture, you aren't aware of any particular historical fact or argument for its reliability, but you know that on its pages you've encountered God and your life has been changed, then you've experienced this. Wayne Grudem writes, we are convinced of the Bible's claims to be God's words as we read the Bible. It's one thing to affirm that the Bible claims to be the words of God. It's another thing to be convinced that those claims are true. Our ultimate conviction that the words of the Bible are God's words comes only when the Holy Spirit speaks in and through the words of the Bible to our hearts and gives us an inner assurance that these are the words of our Creator speaking to us. Right? The Lord's sheep hear His voice. And to read the Bible is to know the voice of God. Now, I trust you've experienced what I'm talking about here. But that might not get me far in a conversation with somebody who doesn't see this as any different than, you know, the Mormons burning in the bosom or Granny's tingly feeling in her elbow when bad weather is on its way. Um, that's how I know the Bible's true. How do I show that the Bible is true? Well, a number of things could be said there. Here are two ways uh, that the Bible's claim about itself is demonstrated in reality. Why trust the Bible? One answer I would give is that I trust the Bible because I trust Jesus. And he trusted the Bible. And many people find Jesus to be a trustworthy person, but for some reason they hold the Bible as suspect. But Jesus accepted all of Scripture as God's word. He referenced the Old Testament as a whole, listed out the individual sections of Scripture, recognized uh, the standard Jewish canon, and cited particular texts in each case, identifying God himself as the ultimate author. The Scriptures cannot be broken, he says. And he then commissioned his apostles to speak with his authority and bear witness to his truth by the Spirit. So if you have Jesus, you have with him the Old and New Testament. But why trust Jesus? Well, because he rose from the dead, as we celebrated last week. How do we know he's risen from the dead? Well, I would invite you to do more in investigation into this, but just very quickly, there are several facts surrounding the events of the resurrection that the vast majority of New Testament scholars and historians of early Christianity recognize. And these guys aren't necessarily Christian. They're just as naturalistic as anybody else in, in many cases. But they recognize these facts, such as the death of Jesus by crucifixion, his burial by Joseph of Arimathea, the discovery of his empty tomb shortly after his death by a group of his women followers, the appearances of Jesus as alive from the dead to different individuals and groups on multiple occasions. The conversion of the opponent Saul of Tarsus and the skeptic James because they were convinced that they had seen the risen Jesus. These facts are not seriously questioned by scholars who have studied the evidence. Right, the atheist New Testament scholar Gerd Ludemann uh, writes, which that, that might be like, sound like a contradiction to you, atheist New Testament scholar. You might be surprised to hear that in, in terms of mainstream scholarship, there are plenty of unbelievers who give their life to studying Christianity, the Bible, and don't believe a word of it in terms of its authority over their lives. But, but this is what he says. He says, 
it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. What a statement that is. He says it may be taken as historically certain that something really happened here, that they had appearances of Jesus in which he appeared to them as the risen Christ. Now, naturalistic theories such as that the disciples stole the body or that Jesus never died or that the women came to the wrong tomb poor things, or that hallucinations produced the appearances, or that Jesus had a secret twin brother. All right, all of these have not only been abandoned as unconvincing by the majority of scholars, but they're unable to account for all the relevant facts. And when certain conspiracy theories need to be stacked on top of each other in order to explain the data, the improbabilities multiply. They just become increasingly implausible. The only satisfactory explanation is that God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating his claims. So Jesus connects us to the Bible, and Jesus is the central message of the Bible, and that brings us to our final consideration, which is the unified storyline of Scripture. To read the Bible is to encounter a story that explains life. I don't know if you felt this way, but to me, there's just a, a psychological realism when I read Scripture. Whether I'm reading about Delilah's manipulation of Samson or Abigail's gracious persuasion of David, Absalom's rebellious response to what Amnon did or Jeremiah's exasperation at the stubbornness of Israel, the cynical statements of Jesus' unbelieving brothers or the frightened evasiveness of the woman at the well. I always come away feeling here's something that understands and knows humanity more than anything else I've ever encountered. The Bible understands human nature. And it offers a penetrating diagnosis of the human condition. And, and it does this ultimately not just by discussing you know, individual distinct stories, but by locating all of us in a broader storyline uh, that explains both our problem and God's solution to it in Christ. As Keith spent some time talking about in his message last week, it is one consistent and unfolding story from Genesis to Revelation. The Bible is 66 books written by about 40 authors on three different continents over 1,600 years with one unified message. There's absolutely nothing like it in all of literature. It's the greatest true story ever told. And the unity of Scripture reflects its divine authorship, right? That there would be an author above and and driving the force behind the individual human authors. And this is displayed most prominently in fulfilled prophecy. Jesus fulfilled dozens of prophecies that were told hundreds of years before his birth. And many of these he would have no control over if he were just trying to game the system. You know, things like his birth in Bethlehem, his upbringing in Nazareth, his death by crucifixion, the the casting of lots, for his clothing, he can't just manipulate things in order to make these happen. Uh, he did them in order to fulfill the scriptures, is what the gospels say. A math professor at Westmont University had his class come up with the odds that just 
eight of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled would happen to uh, be fulfilled in one person by chance, just eight of them. And he, and he said the odds are one in a hundred million billion. All right, so what do you do with that number? Well, he put it like this. He says, all right, so take the state of Texas and cover the whole surface with one square inch tiles. And don't stop there. Uh, do that to the continental United States. Uh, do that to Africa. Do that to Asia. Do that to every bit of surface geography on the entire globe and mark one of them with a little X and send out a lucky blind man uh, to pick one square. And the chances are that he gets the one square that you chose. That's the chances. That those are the odds that an individual would fulfill just eight of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his lifetime. And so we just have so many good reasons uh, to believe and trust God's word. Just conclude with this. Do you want to keep your faith in the Bible? Want to keep your faith that this is God's word, that God is speaking through the pages of scripture? Well, then read the Bible every day and beg God for insight. Beg God to meet with you through his word. It's, it's no surprise when people who have neglected the Bible, who've not experienced God's intended effect of his word in their lives, uh, suddenly come across issues that are confusing and strange and then begin to look back at this and say, why should we believe this anyway? Well, if it's not been doing anything for you in your life, then no wonder you'd come to that conclusion. So it's just so important for us to stay near to the heart of God through his word. Uh, we need to develop biblical theology and convictions, right? Uh, the best thing you can do to get good at defending your faith is to know the word of God so that when somebody says, well, those people just believe this anyway, you can know, all right, what, what, what chapter and verse for that? You, know, you, you have some biblical bearings to be able to interact with others on these subjects. Even if you can't go into all the details we talked about this morning, if you know God's word, it'll get you very far in interacting on these things and it'll certainly preserve your faith in him. All right, well, we'll stop there and we will pick up next week. Our topic will be, is God a moral monster? Thanks for being with us this morning. <laughs>